Chapter Fourteen of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Fourteen: A Trip to Boston. His ways are not as our ways. It was another August day, hot and dusty, and altogether uncomfortable for most people. Dell did not look uncomfortable. She stood framed in the doorway of the old depot, exactly where she stood the first time you ever heard of her. And but for the fact that the linen suit was fresh and crisp, and the lawn ruffles at neck and wrist perfectly pure and untravel stained, you might imagine that we had gone backward in our story and had just helped her off the cars to make her entree in Lewiston. So exactly in every other aspect did she look like that bright young girl of whom we told you. Yet she was really a year older and had not just alighted from the train, but was standing there watching the man while he fastened the bit of brass to her neat little trunk. That was to see it safe to Boston. It was just a year to a day since she had stood there before and waited for her father. She thought of it, and it sent her mind wandering back over the year. How much she had meant to accomplish! A year had seemed to her a long time, and she had almost expected to work miracles. She both smiled and sighed as she thought of it that afternoon. Well, what had been accomplished? There were times in which Dell's heart answered drearily, "Nothing, nothing." The horrible old tavern still stood, and the dreadful bar still poured forth its poisons. Her father still drank his glasses of brandy, more glasses than he used to drink a year ago. Sam Miller still reeled home from time to time in the darkening twilight and whipped little Mamie and turned his wife out of doors. The loafers still spit and chewed in the bar room, just as many of them as heretofore. Mister Tresevant still preached his sermons of a Sabbath in the horrible den of a church. Still looked with grave, doubtful eyes on the temperance movement, and still remained conscientiously opposed to pledges. Young Mister Elliot still drank his wine in a gentlemanly way when he was where respectable people could see him, and in a much more doubtful way sometimes if report spoke truth. And a looker-on would have said that all things remained as they were before. No, not all. The long, dirty piazza where the spitting, chewing loafers sat that day and stared at Dell. Was now in a new coat of paint, was spotlessly clean and neat, and absolutely bereft of loafers. There were things that Dell would not endure, and this, though apparently a trifle, was one of them. It was an innovation. The great leather-bottomed, high-backed armchairs had stood on that piazza as long and much longer than Dell could remember, and the chewing and spitting and chuckling had gone on from time immemorial. But when Dell had said. They must do all such disgraceful work up inside, father. I cannot have it on my nice clean piazza. And saying it, had dropped her brown head a little on one side and spoken with a determined little ring to her voice. Her father had remembered certain other innovations, such as clean rooms and exquisitely comfortable meals, and no more fighting in the kitchen. And had chuckled a little and admired his daughter immensely and declared it should be as she said. So the piazza was purified, and the young men who boarded in the house came up clean steps without the smell or touch of tobacco or whiskey—a little thing, very. But who is ever going to know but that it saved those young men? There were other little things. Sally and Kate in the kitchen, being still good Catholics, stood ready to fall down and worship their mistress, and in every way in their power aided and abetted her efforts. For hadn't Sally a lover, and didn't he now and then have a spree? And wasn't Miss Dell a help in him to overcome himself? Then the temperance meeting, weak and small though it was, still lived, 
and there were two or three who had joined them that they did not expect, among others the post-office clerk who boarded at the hotel, and who used to take an occasional glass of wine. Then, and Dell's eyes brightened as she thought of that, her class, those five wild young men, her class still. Reformed, you probably think, become patterns to the rising youth of America. Very little of that. But, they came to Sunday school, came every Sunday, and were attentive and respectful to her, though hardly so to anyone else. And Dell was praying for them all, now hopefully, now despairingly, always persistently. Mr. Tresevant came briskly down the straggling street, sprang up the steps, and held out his hand to Dell. You meant to be in time, did you not, Miss Dell? I called to walk with you to the cars, but found you vanished. Dell laughed. I was in haste, she said naively, and it seemed to me I should get on faster if I took an early start, but I don't see that I have made great speed thus far. Isn't the train late, Mr. Tresevant? Not yet, certainly, as it is not due for ten minutes. What haste are you in to leave Lewiston? Has it then no attraction whatever for you? Are you always going to feel that there is no place in the world but Boston? He spoke half reproachingly, but Dell had no answer for him. Both eyes and thoughts were engaged elsewhere. One of her enemies in the shape of a cellar grocery, or, in other words, cellar rum shop, was directly across the street, and toward that fascinating spot shambled one whom she knew. She watched him eagerly till he neared the door, and then the only reply Mr. Tresevant received was an eager, Isn't that Jim Forbes, Mr. Tresevant? Yes, I know it is. Then she called in clear, quick tones, Mr. Forbes! And if a bombshell had exploded just ahead of him, the young man could not have turned more suddenly than he did at the sound of that voice. He came across the street, and Dell came down from the doorway and stood on the second step, smiling and cordial. Did you come up to see me off? she asked, holding out her hand, which he grasped as if his had been an iron vice. No, he said with an awkward laugh. Not exactly. I came to see myself off. I've got to go down to Boston to get an iron fixed. And you are going on this train? Why, then, I shall not have to travel alone, after all. That's nice. Meantime, Mr. Tresevant, after an impatient frown or two, had risen above himself and came forward to greet Jim Forbes. He did not offer to shake hands with him. He had not learned that art yet. Truth to tell, he did not know the rough young fellow well enough to venture, but his greeting was sufficiently kind, and Jim received it with an awkward attempt at courtesy. Mr. Forbes is going to Boston on this train, explained Dell, so I shall have someone to take care of me. Then there came over Mr. Tresevant a suffocating sense of the fact that he, being a minister of the gospel, ought to say something improving to this young man, and he said the last thing that Dell would have had him say if she could have chosen. You must keep away from all such places as that which I saw you about to enter, if you are going to take care of the ladies, my boy. The boy blushed to the roots of his very red hair, but answered promptly enough, That's easier said than done when there's one of them places at every corner, and folks hanging around to coax a fellow in. That is true, Dell said quickly. But, Mr. Forbes, there is coaxing going on on the other side, too, you must remember. Don't you know how much I want you to join our temperance society? And that, you see, could be a help to you as well as to us. Saying which, she looked wistfully at Mr. Tresevant, half hoping he would in this one case see the merit of a pledge, and join his persuasion to hers. But Mr. Tresevant looked down at his boots and was gravely silent. 
As for Jim Forbes, he only blushed the harder and muttered, I don't know about that. And then the train shrieked itself in, and in a very few minutes out again, taking Dell and her escort with it. Dell settled herself into a seat and made room for Jim beside her. That gentleman, however, preferred the arm of the seat and stationed himself thereon. Gradually Dell became unpleasantly conscious that she was attracting attention. She was very well aware that she was a neat, trim, becomingly dressed maiden, and she was equally well aware that Jim Forms was a tall, ungainly, freckled, tanned, red-haired youth in a very much soiled factory shirt, minus collar and cravat, and with a well-worn, not to say ragged coat hanging on his arm. Yet there he sat on the arm of her seat and talked earnestly to her. The stairs became frequent, and some of the comments were loud. As the train neared Boston, there came in the Chesters, the three young ladies, and Mr. Will Chester. They were eager and joyous in their greetings. Why, Dell, Dell Bronson, what a delight to see you again. Are you coming home to stay? Only a week. How awful. Oh, Dell, we can't let you go away again. And then they turned wondering eyes on poor Jim, and Will Chester leaned forward and said, Isn't that fellow offensive to you? Shall I suggest his removal? And Dell, flushing almost as deeply as Jim himself, answered quickly, Oh, no, I know him very well, and turned again to Jim with a cordial, Finish telling me about that evening now, will you? And the Chesters stared and wondered and whispered. At the next station there came on the De Quincey's. Now the De Quincey's had been in the habit of, well, not exactly turning their aristocratic heads away from Dell, because Mr. Edward Stockwell's niece was not a lady to be turned away from, even by the De Quincey's, but they thought her exceedingly peculiar, and were rarely in sympathy with her singular movements. They came over to greet her, and to assure her that Boston had missed her, and then Jim endured some fearful staring, and Miss Helen De Quincey whispered, Isn't that dreadful creature intoxicated? Why don't you appeal to the conductor? Because, said Dell, all her blushing embarrassment gone, and her eyes brimming with mischief, because I have no need of his services. This gentleman is a particular friend of mine. To tell the truth, Dell heartily enjoyed shocking the De Quincey's. At last the train steamed into the Boston depot. Two minutes more, and the tall form of Mr. Edward Stockwell was gently forcing its way through the crowd. Even the De Quincey's stepped a little one side to let him pass. There were very few who were not willing to yield to Mr. Edward Stockwell. Oh, uncle, Dell said breathlessly, with very bright yet very moist eyes. And the voice, gentle and tender as a woman's, yet with a strange sense of strength about it, answered, Darling child! And Dell knew that she was at home once more. She turned suddenly to her companion and spoke eagerly, Uncle Edward, this is Mr. Forbes. Mr. Stockwell's keen eye lighted with a genial smile. One of your class, he said instantly. I remember the name perfectly. Welcome to Boston, Mr. Forbes. Thank you for taking care of my niece. And Jim Forbes felt his hand held in such a cordial, kindly grasp as he had never known in all his life before. And both the De Quincey's and Chester's stared. Now, said Uncle Edward, as the train fairly stopped at last, we can go, I think. One, two, three. Any more, Dell? Mr. Forbes, if you will take the traveling bag, I will manage the rest. And so Mr. Forbes made his first awkward essay in waiting on a lady. Where do you stop? further questioned Mr. Stockwell as they neared his carriage. Any place in view? Oh, let me direct you then, will you? I'll find you a very convenient place. Just take a seat in the carriage. I'm going directly past where you would like to be. Oh, certainly get in. There's plenty of room. 
It's no trouble at all. A friend of Miss Bronson is a friend of mine. And Jim Forbes leaned back among the puffy cushions, and wondered as they whirled through the streets what would happen to him next, and what Joe and Tom and all of them would think if they could see him. At a certain point Mr. Stockwell stopped the carriage and sprang out. Entering the building where a dozen men were riding, he said briefly, Mr. Lewis, I want to see Carrie a moment. From an inner office a brisk young man was promptly summoned. Carrie, said Mr. Stockwell, Miss Dell has come, and in company with her is a young man from the country, one of those whom Satan tempts on every side. Can you get him in at your boarding place and help him through with his business? He is a very rough young fellow, needs especially to avoid saloons and the like. The young man thus addressed answered in a tone prompt and energetic enough to be Mr. Stockwell's own. I'll look after him, sir. Where shall I find him? Here, in my carriage. Mr. Stockwell, meantime, drew his pocketbook and placed a bill in the young man's hands. And, Carrie, have you some pleasant place of entertainment and employment for the evening? Yes, sir, but I have funds on hand. Never mind, this will do for another time, then. Come to the carriage at once, please. Mr. Lewis, you will excuse Carrie for the remainder of the day, if you please. Now, Mr. Forbes, Mr. Stockwell continued, being now at the carriage door, I have a friend here who will look after your comfort with pleasure. Mr. Carey, Mr. Forbes. You return tomorrow, I think you said? Will you call at my office in the morning? Mr. Carey will show you the way. Good afternoon, and thank you again for your kindness. Uncle Edward, Dell said, clasping her hands in an ecstasy of delight, as the carriage door shut them in together. That is just splendid. How did you remember all about this boy, and know what ought to be done for him? It is part of my business, dear child, as an employee of the master, to remember people's names and study their character as far as possible. Uncle Edward, it isn't possible to help these boys in Lewiston. It is a little bit of a village, and I suppose Boston is a great wicked city, but if they were all in Boston I could help to save them. There is not a living soul to help them, no one who has any interest in them. What has become of Mr. Nelson? He would if he could, Dell said thoughtfully, but uncle, there is nothing to do it with. Then it is the facilities that you lack, not the living soul. And in regard to that, dear child, isn't God in Lewiston? And have you forgotten that he has facilities to work with that we know not of? End of chapter 14 Recording by Tricia G.